Hello and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Every generation of Christians looks to the book of Acts and the various letters to churches to try and restore what they each perceive to be the original first century church. What can we learn for this generation? Teaching team member Bob Cargo brings us this message entitled, What the New Testament is All About and Why it Matters to Each of Us, which covers Acts chapter 2, verse 36, chapter 16, verses 16 through 40, and Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Thank you for joining us today. I'm going to start by asking you to imagine someone with a migraine headache. Maybe imagine yourself with a migraine headache. Some people up here are like, no, I don't want to imagine that. <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> but think about just for a moment. Imagine if you had one. It was so bad that you had to lie down. It was so bad you couldn't have any lights on. It was so bad you couldn't have any noise around you. And if that were to be the case for you, you would know that you needed a doctor. Or at least you would know that you need some medicine. You, you would know. There would be a felt need that you need an answer to this migraine headache. Now imagine, by contrast, that you go to the doctor for an annual checkup, and through the blood work, you find out that you have cancer. The problem is, you hadn't felt any symptoms. You never, you didn't know that. If you hadn't had the blood work done, if it hadn't led to the other tests that the doctor ordered, you wouldn't have known that. But at that point, you don't have a felt need to do something about it other than believing what the doctor has told you. And if you believe what the doctor has told you, you'll take appropriate action, right? Well, every preacher knows the difference between preaching about felt needs and unfelt needs. A couple of weeks ago, David McNeely preached a terrific sermon about the issue of comparison. And after a very well-done introduction to that that message, I think every one of us in the room realized I deal with comparison to other people. I think perhaps maybe Randy's series about the unseen relates to things that maybe we didn't have a felt need until we were taught about it. Then we saw the need. We connected the dots. Today's message is going to be more like that latter one. We want to talk today about some things that you need. God is calling you to them, and you need to connect with them. Although sitting in your seat today, right now, you may not know that you need that. Today's message is entitled this. It's rather ambitious. What the New Testament is all about and why it matters to each of us. I told my daughter this week who's in college, this Sunday I'm going to preach about what the, I'm going to preach about the whole New Testament. And her eyes got big as silver dollars. I said, don't worry, I'm not going to go through every book, okay? And I'll tell you, don't worry, I'm not going to go through every book. We're going to look at the whole New Testament by looking at the book of Acts. And, and don't worry, we're not going to go through the whole book of Acts. Instead, we're going to look at one chapter very briefly today because that chapter, in a sense, epitomizes and it encapsulates what the whole book of Acts is about. And Acts tells us the story of what the whole New Testament is really all about. Now, the reason we uh, have a need for that is because of this. Uh, You see, systematic theology only tells us about uh, half of the story, and we need more than that. Now, let me give you also an illustration or two here of why it's important to see something that encapsulates other things. I happen to be a fan of the University of Alabama. It's a good time to be an Alabama fan these days. You may have noticed I got to watch most of the game last night until the early part of the fourth quarter, and the game it looked like it was about over by that point. But somewhere in the second half, Alabama put together a drive, if I remember correctly, about 70 yards that ate up more than seven minutes of clock, and it was sort of a, a great balance of 
rushing, and passing. And you might say that that drive encapsulates a little bit of the strength of the Alabama football team. Now, perhaps you're a music fan, and perhaps there's a band that is a favorite band of yours, and perhaps there is one song that that band has recorded that in so many ways epitomizes the greatness of that band. You hear that song, you understand that song, you understand why the band is so great. Or perhaps like my wife or like my daughters, you're a fan of art. And if you're a fan of art, maybe there is one painter that you especially love, and maybe there is one painting by that artist. And if you understand that painting, you will understand the technique and the style and the genius of that artist. It says it all. Well, Acts chapter 16 is going to be a chapter we look at that in a sense encapsulates all of what the New Testament is about. We also have to ask this question as we get started. Why is it important to see that big picture? Well, the reason it's important to see the big picture is because of this. That is the essence of the story of Christianity. You see, what we call systematic theology only tells less than half of the story. Systematic theology is studying the Bible topic by topic. And you may or may not know this, but most of what we have in systematic theology is the result of theological controversies in the history of the church. So if there wasn't a controversy about something, it probably never made it into a work of systematic theology or a work like the Westminster Confession of Faith. So underneath systematic theology, there is what we call biblical theology. It's understanding the book of of the Bible, book by book, author by author, Old Testament, New Testament, and, and underneath that is the story of the Bible. So if we don't understand the story, we can't understand biblical theology. If we can't understand biblical theology, there is no systematic theology. Now, all of that is important, but what I'm saying is this. If you really want to understand the New Testament, you have to look at the story. And the story basically has two parts. There's the story that we find in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That covers a little bit of the first 30 years of Jesus' life, a little bit, but mostly it's about three years of his life. The book of Acts then talks about a history of about 30 years of the history of the church. And 21 epistles are in the New Testament, and they fit, in a sense, on top of the Acts of the Apostles. They're in the same timeline. So if you understand the New Testament, it's like, here's the story of Acts, and here are these letters written by the Apostles that come in that same history of those 30 years. And if we don't understand that story, we don't understand Christianity. Now, the essence, the essence of what that story is, the Gospels and the work of Acts and all the epistles, here's the essence of it. It is that Jesus is Lord. Now, I don't want you to miss the main point of today's message, so I'll put it in print, and here's on the screen. The big idea of today's message. The primary message of the New Testament is the good news or gospel that Jesus is Lord. Therefore, we live for a new kingdom and live winsomely countercultural lives. Specifically, the book of Acts and the epistles that are part of its story tell us to expect four things from a truly New Testament church. And if from a New Testament church, from New Testament followers of Jesus, like you and like me. Now, maybe you've heard that term, Jesus is Lord, so often and so much that it doesn't mean something to you. It doesn't rattle you like it would have rattled the people in the first century. Or maybe you've heard the idea that Jesus is Lord, and you still get the idea that this is about some privatized internal Christian experience. Well, I don't maybe agree with everything written and taught by a professor called N.T. Wright, but I do agree with this observation out of the book called The Challenge of Jesus. It's sort of a long quote, but follow it, because it is dynamite. He says, when Paul said Jesus is Lord, it is clear that he meant that Caesar was not. 
This is not Gnostic escapism, but Jewish-style no-king-but-God theology with Jesus in the middle of it. And this theology generated and sustained not a group of Gnostic-style conventicles, that is, people who live in convents, but a Jewish-style new covenant community. Christianity was indeed, in the Jewish sense, a kingdom of God movement. Looking wider, it meant the renewal of the world, the establishment of God's justice for the cosmos. It was not about a private existentialist or Gnostic experience, but about public events. If you had said to some first century Jews, the kingdom of God is here, and explained yourself simply by speaking of it as a new spiritual experience, a new sense of forgiveness, an exciting reordering of your private religious interiority, they might well have said that they were glad that you had had that experience. But why did you refer to it as the kingdom of God? In other words, yes, when the kingdom of God comes to me, it does change everything on the inside. There is a religious experience. There is a new sense of forgiveness and a new direction in life. But it means this, if Jesus is Lord, he changes the way I engage with the world. And he brings me on task with him to see the renewal of all things. He brings me on task with him to serve those around me. And all of a sudden, I have a calling in life, many callings, to do things I don't have a felt need to do. But I'm called to do these things because I have a Lord. Because Jesus is Lord And he's doing something in this world. He is calling me to join in with him in what he is doing. And that will bring you tremendous blessings. Specifically today, we want to look at a few examples of this. And it's really all an outworking of this idea of the lordship of Jesus. The very first sermon that is preached in the New Testament after the death and resurrection of Jesus is in Acts chapter 2. Peter there talks about the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ. And he says, he concludes the sermon in this way in verse 36. He says, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this, that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah, Lord and Christ. Here's the message of the New Testament. Jesus is Lord not simply because he is God incarnate. He is Lord because he lived a perfect life for us and he died a perfect death for us. He submitted himself to the cross, and the Father raised him from the dead, and therefore God has given him a name that is above every name. He has made Jesus Lord of all. And that message from the Gospels is the central message underneath the book of Acts, and underneath all of the epistles, it is the central message of Christianity. Jesus is Lord of all. Now, what's that going to mean in your life and mine? There will be a lot of things that it means. But when you look at the book of Acts as a whole, there are four things that we might miss, but four things that we need to understand if we're going to be who God wants us to be. Acts 16 is like this snapshot. It encapsulates and compresses into a short story what the whole story is all about. We pick Acts 16 in part because something happens in Acts 16 that literally changed the course of the whole world starts like this in verses 9 and 10 of Acts 16. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we, that is Luke writing here, we got ready 
to, at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, let's stop and make some comments there. Let me paint the, the picture for you. This is Paul's second missionary journey. He and his entourage and his team of Silas and Timothy and Luke had gone north from Israel up into the area that is now Turkey, called, then called Asia Minor. They had intended to turn east, but it says the Holy Spirit prohibited them. The Spirit of Jesus would not let them. But instead, they turned west, and they went to a city on the coast of the Aegean Sea between what is now Turkey and Greece to a city called Troas. And it was in Troas that Paul received this vision. And the significance of the vision is that this man in Macedonia was saying, come over to here to help. Now, where was Macedonia? It was further west. It was into Europe. Paul had not intended to go there, but God gives him this vision to say, come in this direction. And when Paul turns to the west, the gospel starts marching toward Rome, toward the, 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 the center of all things in that kingdom, of that known world. And it changes the course of history. Well, the story continues in verse 12 of this chapter. Luke says, from there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth, a successful business person. She was a worshiper of God, that is a Gentile that was worshiping Yahweh. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home and said, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my home. Lydia was the first European convert, and it all in this direction started with her. That's the first of three significant stories. Now, the implications and the applications will come later, but hang with me. Story number two starts in verse 16. Luke says, once we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. Verse 17, she followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. Sort of interesting that the, the spirit was cast out because Paul was annoyed. Maybe he loved her and cared for her, but mostly he was annoyed. Stop yelling at us all the time. What you're yelling is true, but stop doing that. Now, we don't know for sure from the context that this lady was converted, but I have to believe that she was. I mean, after all, this spirit went out of her. She was changed. In fact, that spirit had told her the truth. But it took Paul's power, so to speak, the power of Jesus through Paul to set her free so she could believe that truth. But I think she probably was. She was converted. That's story number two. Story number three comes from the results of story number two. You see, the people that owned this young lady who was a slave, well, they were making money by her ability to predict the future. And so then when she is set free from this spirit, their source of money from her goes away. And they don't like that at all. And so they hall Paul and Silas in front of the city officials and they say these men are Jews and they're causing, causing an uproar in Philippi and what you need to understand is just previously to this in this time period the Roman emperor cast all of the Jews out of Philippi so it was easy for them to stir things up and say look what these Jews are doing here they're causing an uproar so the city authorities cast Paul and Silas into prison 
Well, that night around midnight in the prison, they are singing hymns and they are worshiping God and full of joy and the other, the other prisoners are looking at them there. And then there's an earthquake and the foundations of the jail shook and the doors flung open and everyone's chains fall off, not only those of Paul and Silas, but of all the prisoners. Well, the jailer wakes up and sees the door open and assuming everyone has escaped, he intends to take his own life. And Paul calls out and says, don't harm yourself, we're all still here. Story picks up in verse 29. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. Now, what was the result of these three stories? (laughs) Well, about 10 years later, the Apostle Paul is in a prison in Rome, and he gets out parchment and pen, and he writes a letter, and this is how the letter starts. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus, where? At Philippi together with the overseers or elders and deacons, grace and peace to you from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. From these three stories, a church is planted. More people believe, more households are changed. The city of Philippi is blessed because of their presence, and the gospel goes forth. Now there's the little story. Now, what are the implications and what are the applications for your life and mine? If Jesus is my Lord, If Jesus is your Lord, what does he call you to? What does he call me to that underlines the whole book of the New Testament? Four things very quickly today. First is this. The New Testament is the story of the conversion of individuals and families. Jesus died to change the lives of individuals and families. And where Jesus is Lord, individuals will be changed and whole families will be changed. The New Testament is a story of the conversion of individuals. Individuals like, well, 3,000 individuals in Acts chapter 2. The crippled beggar in Acts chapter 3. In chapter 9, Saul of Tarsus becomes the apostle Paul. His life has changed. There's the Ethiopian eunuch out on the desert highway. He believes and his life has changed. There's a Gentile by the name of Cornelius in Caesarea. And his life has changed. And then in Acts 16, there's Lydia. And there's a servant girl, and there's a jailer. And Lydia was like one of the upper-class professionals, but her life was changed. The servant girl was at the other end of the spectrum, probably disdained by everybody in the city, but her life was changed. The jailer was a working-class guy, like a policeman, a government employee, but the gospel came to him, and his life was changed. It touched immediately every part of the city, through those three conversions. But it's not only the story of the conversions of individuals, it's the story of the conversion of households. You see that here? Lydia and her whole household were baptized. When Paul preached the gospel to the jailer, he said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And that night his whole household, everybody in the family believed. And they were all baptized that night. The story of the New Testament is the story of house churches, 
house churches. Very soon, our, our church is going to focus on community groups that meet in homes and in houses. It's an expression of a house church. And in a house church, there are a network of extended families that meet together. And God is working in the lives of those families. And the New Testament talks about the baptism of things like the household of Stephanus. It went house to house. Now here's the point. In John's Creek, in Duluth, and Alpharetta, and Swanee, and all the areas around here, how will people know that Jesus is Lord? They're going to know that Jesus is Lord when they see families changed. When they see lives changed and individuals changed, but not just individuals, whole families. You see, when men become the kinds of husbands and fathers that God wants them to be because they've tasted of the grace of God, then people know that Jesus is Lord. When wives and mothers become the kind of women God wants them to be, not neglecting their children or their husband, nor idolizing their children or their husband, either one, set free by the gospel of Jesus Christ, to be different than the women around them. People know that Jesus is Lord because she's different than the others. When people start parenting their children in a way that doesn't go to any direction that the world goes, but instead has a love for the eternal worth of that child and the spiritual priorities of that child, lives are changed and people notice there's something different here in Jesus is Lord. Men, are you leading your family? One of the reasons that I think our church is Blessed as it is in so many ways is that a strong ministry to men will mean that men lead their families. Men, are you leading your family? Are you the spiritual leader at home? Not only is God calling us to have our community changed family by family, but he's asking us to go forth and share the good news. Are you engaged in some way of taking the good news to the people around you? If you've never taken Randy's training called Express Your Faith, take it the next time it's offered. The reason is this. We all need to know how to winsomely, tactfully, lovingly tell the greatest story that anybody could ever hear. The New Testament is also clear about this. Where there's a a conversion, there is a changed life. Ten times out of ten. In fact, the Bible says that how we handle relationships, family, sexuality, money, possessions, work, and the truth... All of that changes when Jesus comes into our heart and our lives. It all begins to change. The New Testament is the story that Jesus died to change the lives of families and households and individuals. And where Jesus is Lord, all that stuff starts to change. Second thing we see here in Acts 16 is that the story of the New Testament is the story of church planting. It's the story of church planting. Acts is not only the story of of individuals being converted. It's the story of churches being planted where individuals are converted. In my opinion, Randy Pope's going to always see himself as a church planter. Did you hear the announcement earlier about Taste of Perimeter? Come and hear what God did when Randy and Carol came here to do what? To plant a church. And they came here to plant a church that would be a church planting church. A church that plants churches, that plants churches, that plants churches, that plants churches. And that's the reason, by the grace of God, that just about five or six years ago, you may not know this, but Dr. Ed Stetzer evaluated Perimeter Church as one of the five leading church planting churches in North America. All to the praise of God because of what's happened through this whole 35-year history. But it wasn't just Randy's idea. It's not just our idea. It's a biblical idea. See, the story of Acts is not just the story of individuals being converted. This is the story of a church being planted in Jerusalem. 
and a church being planted in Damascus, and a church being planted in Caesarea, the first Gentile church, a church being planted in Antioch, and it becomes a missionary sending church, a very diverse church, a church being planted in Corinth, in Ephesus, in Philippi. Yeah, Philippi. And then someday, in fact, the Bible ends with Paul where? In Rome, in Rome. And if his imprisonment in Rome had not prohibited him, you know what he wanted to do? He wanted the church in Rome to help them go to Spain to preach the gospel and to plant churches. You see, not only does the story of Acts tell the story of church planting, every epistle is about church planting. Did you know that? Every epistle, every letter written by apostle is either written to a newly planted church or it's written to a church planter. So the background of every book in the New Testament is the story of the planting of churches. And what are these churches? They're outposts of the kingdom. We said that Jesus is Lord. And whenever a church, whenever a church starts, it's like an outpost of those people that are in line with the kingdom of God, an outpost of the kingdom. I believe with all my heart that the Holy Spirit rejoices when churches are planted. Why? Because churches bring glory to Jesus, and the Holy Spirit is all about the glory of Jesus. As this church's director of church planting, I want to say thank you, thank you for your strong commitment to church planting. Through your giving, through your praying, through so many people that have gone, through people who support in all kinds of ways, God continues to touch all of Atlanta and touch people across this country and around the world because we're committed to that. The New Testament is a story that Jesus has died to change the lives of individuals and families. Jesus has died for the planting of churches, the outposts of the kingdom. And thirdly, Jesus has died for the blessing of cities. The New Testament is a story of a focus upon cities. The way I like to put it is this way. Followers of Jesus seek to bless their cities. God has given us a city-focused strategy in the New Testament. Let me ask you, do you ever think about the city in which you live? Do you ever think about the city of Atlanta? Other people have made this observation. Most people come to a city simply to be a consumer and a taker. Christians need to come to whatever city they're in in order to be a giver and to be a blessing. Are you simply taking from your city or are you giving to it? And are you just taking from Metro Atlanta or are you giving to it? Did you notice here in the book of Acts when God led Paul to Macedonia, He led him to Philippi, which it says was one of the leading cities of Macedonia. I didn't find this out until very recently, but it wasn't until the end of the second century or the first part of the third century that the gospel even began to go to rural communities in the Middle East and in Asia. Why? Because God led the apostles and those who followed the apostles to go city to city to city. It was a city-focused strategy. I don't often do this, but let me recommend you Google a couple of things and read them later. Too long for me to go into. But Google Tim Keller, Why Plant Churches, and Google Tim Keller, Why God Made Cities. He'll unpack the theology that I don't have time to go into today of why God has given us a city-focused strategy. But we do. Our church not only has an initiative called Bless Families, our church has an initiative called Bless Cities. For me, this especially started when I was in seminary. I went to chapel one day when I was there in Deerfield, Illinois, at my seminary. I heard a a professor, really a missiologist and a city missionary named Dr. Ray Bakke. Dr. Bakke told his story 
of moving into the inner city of Chicago years and years before that. And all that he did to bring a blessing to the city of Chicago. And he was the one that first enlightened me that through most of the 20th century, evangelical Christians were deserting the cities, running as quickly as they could away from large cities. Now, what God needs, has called us to do is to re-engage with cities. You know what? We are blessed to live in this burgeoning city of almost 6 million people. And it's a city of worldwide influence. And God has called us to bless this city. For about 13 years of my life, I lived ITP, that's inside the perimeter. And for a lot of that time, I was sort of an ITP snob. In fact, sometimes now when I run into people that I knew way back in the day, I say, I live so much further out than where I used to make fun of people for a living. But because of that experience, I have a deep passion that those of us in Johns Creek would understand that Johns Creek doesn't exist by itself. Duluth doesn't exist by itself. Swanee doesn't exist by itself. We are in the orbit of the city of Atlanta, and God has called us to love Atlanta, to serve Atlanta, to seek the blessing of Atlanta. That's his calling for us. And not only that, he calls us to serve in the communities where we are. Are you in Alpharetta? Seek to be a blessing to Alpharetta. Are you in Johns Creek? Seek to be a blessing to Johns Creek. Why? Because God has a strategy that is focused upon cities. Jesus died for the changed lives of individuals and families. He died that these new outposts of the kingdom called churches would be established and would multiply. And he died so that cities would be renewed and cities would be blessed. Are you engaged in trying to bless Atlanta and trying to bless your city, whatever that would be? And lastly, number four, Jesus died to create the new community. Leonce Crump calls it the new ethnos. And along with that, there is a special care for the poor. You know, the reason Acts 16 is so important is because of this. Christianity began as a group of Jewish people following a Jewish rabbi. And here in Acts 16, the story of that rabbi heads in the direction of Rome, a very non-Jewish place. And because of that, the history of the world is changed. God has an intention of taking the gospel across cultural and racial barriers. It's all an outworking of what Jesus said in Acts 1.8. He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And what does he promise? You'll be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem and in Judea, that's where the Jews lived, and in Samaria, the Samaritans were half Jew and half Gentile, and to the ends of the earth, out where the Gentiles were. This was shattering in the minds of the first Jewish followers of Jesus, or it should have been if they really got it, but they didn't. It took most of the book of Acts for them to get it. <laughs> but the intention of Jesus all along was that the gospel would go from Jews to Samaritans and then to Gentiles. It was the intention, as Paul talked about later in, in Ephesians 2.15, God's purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, that is Jew and Gentile, thus making peace. In fact, a lot of people misunderstand what the book of Acts is all about. And the reason they do is this. They miss the very crux of the issue. The crux of the issue in Acts is the gospel would go from Jew to Samaritan to Gentile. There are three times in the book of Acts where the Holy Spirit is poured out in a visible way upon people that have already believed in Jesus. The first time is in Acts 2 with this group of Jews, the beginning of the New Testament period. 
The second time is in chapter 8 with a group of Samaritans. And the third time is in chapter 10 with the first group of Gentiles who were converted at the home of Cornelius. Then it never happens that way again. Every time after that, when someone receives Christ, they receive the Holy Spirit. There's not a difference of timetable. Well, why did God do it the way that he did it? He did it, and this is explicitly described in the book of Acts. He did it so that the Jewish followers of Jesus would realize, we can't keep the Samaritans out of this, they got the Spirit just like we did. And we can't keep the Gentiles out of this, because they got the Spirit just like we did. And God made his point, I want to make one new humanity that breaks down all of these racial divides, so that people see my people worshiping me together and following me together. You know, our community here in Johns Creek and in the surrounding areas, if you went in a five-mile radius, or even more so, a 10 or 12, a 12 or 15-mile radius around where we are right now, how much diversity would we see? We'd see a ton of it. And my hope and my prayer is that our church would begin more and more to reflect the diversity of our community. It's happening little by little, and I praise God for it. You know what? We need to be ready when that happens, that there will be those times where we don't quite totally understand one another. Dr. Tim Keller and others that have taught on this topic have said that when a church becomes diverse, one of the things you can expect is that very often there are times where people don't quite get the other group because they're from a different cultural background. This hit me especially a few weeks ago. I preached basically the same message at the service of the Renovation Church, pastored by Leonce Crump, and it was their service of ordaining, installing their first group of elders. And I preached basically this same message. And as I prepared for that, that message, Leonce told me that he was planning to wear a robe that he had been given by Brian White, one of our pastors here. And I knew that Brian and, and Leonce did not have a black Scottish Presbyterian robe. That was the kind of robe they were going to have. And so sure enough, I saw the robe that, that Leonce had that Brian had given him. It was a bright gold robe. I mean, it looked like he stepped out of the locker room of the New Orleans Saints, you know, sort of gold and some dark trim on it. And it actually entered my mind for me to, that I would call Leonce and say, Leonce, don't wear your robe for this service because the white folks are not going to understand that. And then as I prepared this message, I realized that's exactly the point, is that the white people would not understand that. And increasingly in a church that represents the mosaic of God's kingdom, every ethnic group in the church at some point along the way will look at something going on in the church and say to themselves, I've never seen that before. I've never heard that before. That's a new experience for me. And when we had that kind of an experience of the mosaic of God's people coming together, and doesn't mean different racial types come together and all act white all the time. That's not what the point is. The point is that, that we would represent the whole group of people that God has brought among us here, black and white and Asian and Latino, that it all gets reflected and the world stands up and takes notice that here there is a unity like I don't see anywhere else. Here there's an understanding like I don't see anywhere else. Here there are people that love each other and care for each other like I don't see anywhere else. Not only is, does the gospel bring down a barrier of racial divide, the gospel takes us to a place where we care about the poor and the needy. You have to be blind not to see that in the New Testament, Jesus had a special place in his heart for the poor and the downtrodden and the needy and the hurting. And I'm so thankful that 10 or 15 years ago, God led the leaders of our church to a fa through a phase of repentance so that we began to say, yes, let's serve our community like we never have before. 
And all of our community outreach ministries have come from that. And I thank God for one expression after another of that kind of ministry in and of our church. It puts us in line with the Lordship of Jesus. And today, let me just say to you that if you're a small group leader, if you're a discipleship leader, if you're a, a home group leader or a fellowship group leader, would you please ask yourself, how can I lead my group to serve those in need in the name of Jesus? How can you do that? Because when you do that, you're living out the Lordship of Jesus. Well, there it is, the whole New Testament in about 25 minutes. Now, I don't want you to miss the main point. Would you see it again on the screen with me? And would you this time maybe read it aloud with me, please? The primary message of the New Testament is the good news, gospel, that Jesus is Lord. Therefore, we live for a new kingdom and live winsomely countercultural lives, specifically the book of Acts and the epistles that are part of its story tell us to expect four things from a truly New Testament church. Jesus died for individuals and families. And when Jesus is Lord, we see individuals and families converted. Jesus died for the establishment of new outposts of the kingdom. And where Jesus is Lord, churches will aspire to be church planting churches. Jesus died so that many of us would become one together coming together with our differences, and Jesus died so that cities would be blessed. And where Jesus is Lord, people seek to bless their cities. He died for these things. Now, let me tell you very honestly, all four of these things make me very uncomfortable. <laughs> they really do. You think, Bob, you're preaching about this. You're our director of church planting. All this makes you uncomfortable? Absolutely, it does. Did you hear recently in the video today about the folks that adopted uh, these children? She said, I was into service, and I was hearing about this, and I became very uncomfortable. Very often in our lives, you know you're on the track to do what God has called you to do when you start becoming uncomfortable in the process. It's why C.S. Lewis once said, if you're looking for a religion that will make you really comfortable, I do not recommend Christianity. If you live under the worship of Jesus, he's going to make you uncomfortable. It's also why C.S. Lewis said, if you're, if you're thinking about becoming a Christian, you need to understand that you're embarking upon a journey in which your whole life will be consumed. Your whole life. It will take all of you. When you live under the Lordship of Jesus, He changes everything. And He changes everything in part by calling us to these things. How are you engaged in taking the gospel to individuals and families, and how are you leading your family? How are you in some way at least praying for church planting and seeking to be a blessing to the multiplication of our church around our city and throughout our country and around the world? In what ways are you loving your city? Do you ever pray for Atlanta? Do you ever think about it? You need to. And are you in some way seeking that the gospel would go forth in your heart in such a way that racial differences don't make much difference? You start loving people who are different from you. You don't make it a case where they've got to be like you. You're just embracing the mosaic of God's kingdom. How is God going to work in you in that way? Three questions as we close. Three crucial questions. Number one is this. What about discipleship? Did I miss that? Was it? No, no, I didn't miss it. See, discipleship is being taught to do what God has commanded us to do, including these four things. Discipleship is the means. Doing stuff like this is the ends. <laughs> 
So no, we didn't miss discipleship. Discipleship is learning to follow Jesus into the uncomfortable places like these four things. Second question is how. How are we going to do this? It's such a big thing. It's such a hard thing. And the how is the Holy Spirit. In Acts 16, 6, it says, the Holy Spirit led Paul. And the Holy Spirit will lead you. He'll empower you. In verse 7 of this chapter, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Jesus. And when you put your faith in Jesus and in the cross of Jesus, you'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit of Jesus will lead you and guide you and empower you. And the last question is not only how, but it's why. Why should I be so inconvenienced? I'm busy doing all the other stuff that people in North Atlanta do. I go to work and I'm trying to take care of my house and I'm trying to get my kids to the activities where they go to and I'm trying to manage my money and I'm trying to do all the stuff that the lost people around me also do. So why, could I, why should I inconvenience myself for any of these things? And we end where we started. Peter said, therefore, let all Israel, let all Atlanta... Be aware of this. Be assured of this, that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. The reason we do it is this. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. This is the why. This is the how. And I need to tell you, this is the good news. He's Lord. He is changing everything. And he calls us to be his partners. And if you'll partner with him, you'll be blessed to be in the journey. Let's pray as we close. Lord Jesus, we acknowledge today that we don't like to be made uncomfortable. It could be you're leading us to adopt some children that need to be adopted. You're leading us to serve our city in a way that takes us way out of our comfort zone. You're leading us to to love some brothers and sisters in this church and welcome them into this church and let this church look like a mosaic instead of a cultural homogenous group. Lord, I don't know what you're, all you're calling us to individually, but I ask you that you would give us the faith to believe that Jesus is Lord, to live under his lordship, and to trust the power of his spirit to be what you called us to be. Lord, I thank you that this is a church that celebrates all of these things that I preached about today. Thank you for our leaders. Uh, thank you for the example of our lead pastor here. We thank you that this comes out of his heart and the heart of all of our leaders as well. So Lord, may your will be done. May John's Creek, may all of Atlanta know that Jesus is Lord here because they see the evidence in our lives. We prayed in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.